Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Hey, uh, we started a brand new series last weekend uh, where we've been looking at the book of 1 John and we are asking the ever so provocative question, am I going to heaven? Did everybody enjoy last week? Enjoy is probably the wrong word for what happened last week, but we listened to it and we received uh, from it. But uh, we're asking this question, am I going to heaven? I think it's a question that everybody on planet earth has to ask themselves at some point. Whether you believe in Jesus right now or not, at some point you reach this, this, this moment of actualization, of realization where you have to ask yourself, is eternity real? And if so, where am I going to spend it? Uh, I think everybody's had that moment, whether it was a near-death experience or somebody sitting on their deathbed or maybe just one night tossing and turning, couldn't sleep. You start thinking about things and you're wondering, I wonder if eternity is real. And if so, where am I going to spend it? And, and for those that have determined that eternity is real and that we're going to spend it in one of two places uh, and they would like to spend it in the better of those two places, <laughs> I think the obvious and very important next question is, well, what does it take for me to get to heaven? We all need to answer that question. It's a tension that we manage. Uh, there's a research group known as Barna, and the Barna Research Group, they do a, a surveys every couple of years of Americans, and they ask them a bunch of uh, Christian-related questions. And a few years ago, they asked that question to uh, a few thousand Americans. They said, do you believe in heaven? And if so, you know, do you think you're going to go there? And of the people that they polled, and these were just random folks on the street, 80% of America said, yes, we believe in an afterlife, we believe in heaven, and about the same number of people said, I believe that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Now, although most people agreed that heaven was real and most people agreed that they were going to go there when they pass away, the answer that came to the next question varied vastly when they said, well, why do you think you're going to go there? And some people answered, obviously, you know, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I pay my taxes. I don't kick the dog. I keep a vegan diet. I'm, I'm, a, good, I'm a good person. Uh, others responded that uh, they, they believed they were going to go to heaven because they grew up going to church or they came from a religious family. Uh, actually, a lot of people said they believed they were going to heaven because they didn't believe in a literal hell and they thought a loving God shouldn't have one of those. And so I think we all just kind of go to heaven by default. But the answers varied based on everybody's perspective of what does it take for me to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Now, call me crazy, but if we actually believe that heaven is real and eternity is real and everyone's gonna spend it somewhere, I feel like we should have a pretty solid answer about how it is that we're supposed to get to that place. We, we should know, like unequivocally, like, like and we know that we know that we know that we are gonna go there. And that is actually the intent and the purpose of this series, to create a sense of eternal confidence. Something in the heart of every believer that says, I know that I know that I know that I'm gonna spend an eternity with Jesus. And, and the theme verse, the main verse we've been looking at in this short letter that the Apostle John wrote to the church uh, is actually found near the conclusion of his letter here where he kind of asks the same question. He tells us his purpose and his motive for writing this letter. He says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, uh, my purpose in writing is simply this, that you who believe in God's Son 
will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life, the reality and not the illusion. I love that line, the reality of eternal life and not some kind of deception where you're just walking around hoping that you have the right answer about how to get there, but you would know that you know. And we talked about that word last week, that word know. It's a very important word in the Greek. It's the word edo. And the word means to discover through inspection or through examination. John's entire purpose of this book is that we would take our lives and we would examine our lives against his letter, against this book. We would do a little bit of an inspection so that we could determine if there are any discrepancies. And if so, if we find that some of the advice he's giving us in this letter, it it differs from our day-to-day experience, then we need to adjust accordingly. Why? For the purpose of answering that question. Am I going to heaven? Yes, I know because my life looks like the letter. So last week we started out and we began to look into chapter one, uh, talking about his examination of light and darkness. He said, if you claim to have fellowship with God, but you continue to walk or continue to live in darkness, then you're lying to yourself and you're lying to God. You're not living in the truth. No, we need to live in the light as he is in the light. And our determination, our goal at the conclusion of last week's sermon was simple. We don't wanna be those who become visitors of the light while we remain residents of the darkness. We don't wanna just dip in and out of church and dip in and out of group and assume that everything's okay. No, we're gonna live our lives in the light as he is in the light because there is no such thing as dual citizenship in the kingdom. We're gonna live there, plant our roots down deep and say, this is where I am staying. Uh, Today, we are going to take yet another uncomfortable mirror look, if you will, into this second chapter as John once again pulls no punches and he begins to explain to us what this life of faith is truly supposed to look like. Uh, John chapter two, verse one, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, If not, it'll pop up on the screen. He says this, "Uh, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Easy enough. Uh, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not just our sins, but actually the sins of the whole world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Super fun, right? Super encouraging. Like, come on, John, gear down a little bit, bro. Why are you calling everybody a liar all the time? Guy seems to like that phrase, you are just a liar. I'm like, come on, man, be kind. Someone's thinking like, hey, I brought my friend to church today and I was hoping that this would be a really encouraging message. I promise this guy's way nicer most of the time. He doesn't normally wear a blouse. It's gonna be great, okay? But (laughs) actually, he always wears blouses. But anyway, (laughs) again, remember, the motivation for this book is simple. It's not to squish you like a bug or hold up a magnifying glass to an ant and burn you. It's for the purpose of examination. He's asking us to look at our lives and to determine, hey, are we truly living a life in alignment with the confession of Christ that we make. So let's go ahead and examine ourselves a little bit today as we go to the Word. If you're taking notes, I wanna title this chat a very famous parental phrase, in one ear and out the other. (laughs) Let's pray and we'll get into it. Uh, Jesus, we love you so much. I thank you for your presence in this space. 
God, I thank you for permission from uh, our government to gather once again in your presence. And God, I, I pray right now for every single one of us as we're gathered here today, not just that you'd keep us safe and keep us away from COVID, but that you would impact us today, that you would meet with us and encounter us in this space. For those that are watching online today, I pray that there would be no disconnect from what happens in this room and what happens in their living room. We receive your word today and everything you wanna say to us. And Lord, even if it hurts, even if it cuts a little bit, I pray that it would cut to the heart of where we're at so that you could bring about change in our lives. We could examine ourselves and live according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, I know I already said it, but I'm gonna say it again. Um, I am so incredibly grateful that we get to gather again in this space. Uh, my wife obviously shared Bryson's story. Bryson, where are you at? Right there in the front row. Come on, baby. Thank you for sharing your story. And you know, what Bryson experienced and what so many have experienced is there's just certain things that, that happen in the gathering of faith. When a bunch of believers come together and they lift up their voice and they lift up the name of Jesus, there is something significant and supernatural that happens in the gathering that isn't replicated in isolation. And there's a lot of spiritual reasons that I'm really, really grateful that we are gathering again. But there's also a couple of very practical reasons, one in particular that I'd like to share with you today. Uh, one of the main reasons I'm really glad that we get to gather here is because for the last 11 weeks and then before that, God knows how many weeks, uh, as we were recording these services, uh, my two daughters would sit right here in the front row and they would listen to every single sermon that I preached. And you might think that, you know, a dad who preaches, like that's a dream come true, right? You know, his two daughters sitting in the front row, hanging on every word that dad says, receiving the word of the Lord from their father. Tell me more, daddy. I need to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that part was great. But a couple of months ago, my daughters came to me after one of the sermons, which would have never happened if we weren't recording and they weren't sitting there. And they said, dad, we need to talk. I said, okay, what's, what's going on? They're like, we don't really like some of the stories that you tell about us to the church. I said, okay. So you, you seem to tell these stories and people laugh and they think it's funny and you think it's funny, but it's actually a little bit embarrassing for us. So we came up with a new plan and here's how it's gonna go. Henceforth, anytime you'd like to tell a story about us in church, we need to, we need to, we need to hear it first and we reserve the right to veto any story that you intend to use for the congregation just because we want to make sure that people think that, you know, we're good people, all right? And I'm like, this is a problem for me. Part of the reason preachers have kids is for material. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> of course I wanted to raise daughters and, you know, raise them up in the ways of the Lord and future, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I need some material. I got to do this every single week of my life, all right? This ain't easy. I got to get creative with some new stories. Give me some fodder here. But now they're back in kids' church. <laughs> And I'm confident they don't listen to the podcast. So, here we go. <laughs> Let me ask some parents in the room today. Any of y'all got some kids that seem to have that selective hearing disease where, like they, have a, they were born with a filter so that there's certain things they hear really, really well and then magically the things that you want them to hear they never seem to be able to get into their brain. Has that ever happened to any other parents out there? Okay, good, I'm not alone, hallelujah, yeah. The in one ear and out the other syndrome, yeah. So, like your kids could be in the back of the house. This happened to me so many times. My wife and I would be in the living room or maybe they're down in the basement. I mean, like we're, we're yards and yards and yards away from them. And we'll whisper about something like, hey, you know, 
the girls have been doing a really good job this week at school, and, you know, they've just they've been kind to one another, and we should, we, should, we should treat them to ice cream this week. And then all of a sudden, they just come. <laughs> so, so, someone say ice cream? Did you say ice cream? I'm like, how did you hear me? <laughs> like, but then you ask them to do something like, hey, could you clean your room? Could you pick up your clothes? Could you flush the stinking toilet? And magically, they don't hear any of that. They can hear a whisper across a football field, but they can't hear you looking in their face, telling them to clean some things up. Just a couple of, of days ago, I was having a conversation with one of my daughters. I won't tell you who, just in case. And I told her three times, hey, I need you to pick this up off the ground. Hey, I need you to pick this up off the ground. Hey, I need you to pick this up off the ground. Lo and behold, she didn't pick up a thing. On the fourth time, I got, um, let's call it passionate about my request. Don't judge me. Some of you parents are like, you yell at your, you yell at your children too sometimes, all right? So I, I explained to her how I needed her to pick this up and I was sick and tired of asking her to do the same thing over and over again. And she looks at me, she has the audacity to say, she says, Dad, why are you yelling at me? You never even asked me to do it. Cleansing breath, cleansing breath. I said, yes, I did. I actually asked you three times. And then I used that cliche parental phrase. I swear, sometimes it feels like everything I tell you goes in one ear and, and out the other. Yes. Yeah, you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. And as much as I would love to criticize my children for this particular syndrome, I seem to recall, and my parents could nod their heads in the front row, that I may have had similar problems growing up as well. Yes. I too suffered from the in one ear and out the other dilemma. And I would be willing to guess that all of you <laughs> probably had some parents that experienced the same thing, where they would ask us to do something and we wouldn't follow through with it. And John seems to suggest that in fact, maybe it wasn't just a problem you had in your adolescence, but it's actually a problem that many of us are still dealing with. It seems as though even as adults, people of faith, we have the ability, when it comes to the things that God has asked us to do, to see those things go in one ear and out the other. We seem to have some selective hearing when it comes to commandments. Let's look back at this book for just a moment, see what John's talking to us about. He, he starts off this particular portion of his letter the same way that he started off last week. Before he begins to explain the hard details of what we need to hear, he establishes a fundamental truth that all of us must be convinced of. A truth that is kind of like the Mary Poppins deal. It's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. We need to understand this first before what he's about to tell us. Here's how he starts off this section of the letter. He says in, in, in verse one of chapter two, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of all the world. Before John starts calling all of us liars, he first preaches the very simple, fundamental gospel to every single one of us. He reminds us of this truth. He says, I'm telling you this because I would love for you to be inspired not to sin. I would love for you to, to look at the word of God and to know what God expects of us and to not fall into those temptations. But when you do sin, I want you to remember something. You need to remember 
you have an advocate. You have somebody that pleads your case to the Father. What John is doing right here in the scripture is he begins to use this incredibly, incredibly powerful language and he begins to liken this relationship we have with God to something that would take place inside of a courtroom. He's, he, this is the picture he's giving. He's like, imagine you're on trial and, and you're on trial for a crime that you know you committed and everybody else in the courtroom knows you committed. And that particular crime is one that is deserving of death. One by one, the witnesses come up and they share their testimony. And as they share their testimony, the, the courtroom only becomes all the more convinced that you are guilty and deserving of death. And, and at the last moment, just before the judge is about to drop the gavel and he's about to sentence you to death, another star witness comes up for your defense. His name is Jesus. And he sits down and the bailiff comes over and he says, do you swear to tell the whole truth, the nothing but the truth? So help you God, put your hand on the Bible. And he's like, I am the word, I am the truth. Rolls his eyes and the bailiff sits down. <laughs> Jesus looks at the courtroom and he says, hey, um, listen, we all know this dude is guilty. We get it. It's obvious that he committed the crime or she committed the crime. And you're right, they deserve death. But I wanna offer you another option. Instead of putting them to death, I'm actually gonna offer myself up as a sacrifice on their behalf. Let me tell you why that's a better sacrifice. This dude's guilty. You kill him, you're killing somebody that's already messed up. I'm perfect. <laughs> I've never sinned, I've never committed a crime, I, and yet I'm willing to lay down my life so that this person can go free. I'm offering my life up as an exchange, as atonement for their sin. In fact, oh judge, if anybody else finds themselves in your courtroom and they are guilty of a crime deserving of death, I'm willing to allow you to put me to death instead of them as well. Not just for this person, but for anybody who finds themselves in a similar situation. He begins to preach the simple gospel. That is the gospel. Let, let, me, let me get basic elementary for about 30 seconds here. The gospel is simple. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. There is none righteous, no, not one. Our righteousness is like filthy rags in comparison to the goodness and the perfection of God. And yet it says in Isaiah 53 that he became our sin, that he took upon himself all of our failure, all of our past, all of our anguish, all of our pain, and he exchanged his life so that we could be set free and he would be punished on our behalf. And now the only thing that's required of us is not to live a perfect life, but to place our faith in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. To look at the cross and say, I believe that you died for my sin and that you resurrected for my freedom. And that confession alone is how we answer this very simple question. Am I going to heaven? If you have placed your faith in the risen Christ, yes, you are on your way to an eternity with him. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and he is the only way to the Father. And John mandates that we remember this first. He says, you have to remember the gospel before we get into this next thing. If I tell you what I'm about to tell you without you remembering that your sin has already been paid for, it's gonna be this unachievable standard of holiness that you'll never amount to. But once you see through this filter of grace, you'll be able to receive what I'm about to say. So now that we have that filter, let, let's, let's dive a little deeper. He says this in the following verse. And we can be sure 
that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, yeah, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and isn't living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we are living in him. So having laid this foundation, this foundation of the gospel, John does exactly what he did last week and what so many of the New Testament writers do. He begins to remind us that truly receiving this revelation of atonement through Christ will affect the way we live our daily lives. He says, if, if you remember that you have somebody, an advocate on your behalf that has taken the blame for you, it's gonna change the way you live your life. It's gonna change the way you do your Monday through Sunday. Back to the courtroom for a moment. Imagine you are that person who just got set free. Jesus has now been sentenced to death. The only appropriate response for you is to walk out of that courtroom and to not commit the same crime over and over and over again. To walk back out of that courtroom and continue to do what you did before is to not truly appreciate or honor the sacrifice that was made on your behalf. And John is saying, if we have truly received Christ, if we have truly received the truth of what he's done for us, then it will change the way we live our lives. In fact, if, if John was into alliteration and he liked it as much as I did, like some of the Baptist preachers, here's what he would say. The evidence is obedience. The evidence that you've received Christ, the evidence that you've truly received his grace and his forgiveness is obedience. Actions speak louder than words. You can talk all about the fact that you love Jesus and you go to church and you know the lyrics of the Christian songs, but the proof will be in your obedience. Let's talk about that word for a couple moments, shall we? Such a fun one that we love talking about. Obedience. Something we want from our children, but we never seem to handle ourselves. <laughs> you know, obedience shows up a lot in the Bible, as you'd expect. It's a pretty common word in there. Um, in fact, most people who don't even know anything about Christianity, they would probably assume that obedience is one of the core tenets of our faith, to obey the word of God and, and, and what he says. But I'm going to share something with you today that might mess with you a little bit, might blow your mind. Do you know that the word obedience is not really a Bible word? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually, it's an English word that we've used to define a biblical concept, but it's not really much of a Bible word. Let me explain. Um, I've said this before, but I'll remind us that when we read these letters to the New Testament church, we need to remember their authorship and their context. We need to remember who is writing the letter and whom he's writing it to. In this case, this letter is written by a guy by the name of John, the Apostle John. John was a Hebrew boy. He was a Jewish man. And as a Hebrew, as a Jewish guy, he would have spoken Hebrew or perhaps Aramaic, but those are the predominant languages of the day. Uh, he's also writing this letter to a predominantly Jewish audience, Jewish Christians. Those, that is, those who were following Judaism. And then because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they've now placed their faith in him and they are, they are now converts to Christianity. But they still have these Jewish roots. They are still very Jewish folks. So we got a Jewish guy that's writing to predominantly Jewish people. And did you know that in the Hebrew, there is actually no word for obedience? The word obedience does not exist in the Hebrew. Rather, the word that we use, obedience, in Hebrew is the word shema. 
And the word Shema does not mean to obey. It means to listen. Shema, to listen. To the Hebrews, listening and obedience are synonymous. To, to listen is to obey. To know is to listen, and to listen is to obey. Now, that may not seem all that important, but let me explain to you why it's very important. In fact, let me give you a quote from a guy by the name of Tim Mackey, one of my favorite theologians. He says, the word listen here means to allow the words to sink in, provide understanding, and generate a response. In other words, in Hebrew, listening and doing are basically the same thing. To truly listen is to do what God is asking you to do. Now, that might sound like splitting hairs, but again, let me explain why this is vitally important. While listening and obedience, obedience are exactly the same thing in Hebrew, hearing and listening are not. According to scripture, it is entirely possible for someone to hear the word of God, but not listen to the word of God. To hear what God is saying, but to not heed what God is saying. And Jesus talked about that all the time. Take a look at some of the statements of Jesus. Luke eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, blessed is the person who hears the word of God and they listen, they shema, they follow through with it. Jesus is making a distinction. You can hear the word of God, but that does not mean that you are listening to what God is telling you to do. It's going in one ear and out the other. You can hear it without heeding it. Jesus takes it a step further. He says in Luke 8, 18, so pay attention to how you hear. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But to those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away from them. Notice Jesus did not say, pay attention to what you hear. He said, pay attention to how you hear. Big difference. There's a whole lot of people that hear a whole lot of stuff every single Sunday. There's some church people that hear about reading the Bible. They hear about praying. They hear about purity. They hear about tithing. They hear about generosity. They hear that the very next step of their faith is to be water baptized. They hear a whole lot of stuff, but they're not doing it. They're not heeding it. Is it getting quiet? I feel like it's getting really quiet in here. The amens are lacking. I don't know what it's like in your living room right now, but here it's a little bit awkward. Jesus, uh, he, he talked a lot about this. In fact, he told a story about it one day. Uh, one day he's speaking to a group of people and as he does, he begins to use a parable. And a parable is a fictional story that displays a spiritual truth. And uh, it's, it's, it's given so that we can understand a little bit better what Jesus is saying and apply it to our lives. And Jesus begins to tell this story to a group of folks that he's teaching. And he says, there was a guy who had a, a vineyard and he had these two sons. And the, the, the father tells these two sons to go out and work in his vineyard uh, for the day. And the first son looks at the father and he says, you bet, dad, I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna be the best vine keeper on planet Earth. You bet, I'm gonna do it for you, dad. But then he just sits on his butt and doesn't do anything about it all day long. The second son looks at the father and he says, I really don't want to, dad. I'm not interested in doing that. I don't feel like doing that right now. But then later on in the day, that son changes his mind. He comes to his senses and he eventually goes out to the field and he begins to work. And then Jesus looks at the crowd that he's speaking to and he asks a question. He says, which one of these two sons do you think shamad? Which one listened? The one who said he'd do it but never went 
or the one who was a little bit reluctant, but eventually he went out and did the right thing. And of course the crowd answered correctly. They said, the son who said no at first, but went out and ended up serving. He says, yeah, you got that right. So since Jesus is asking some awkward and uncomfortable questions, permit me to do the same. If Jesus were to walk into our building today and he were to share a very similar story with all of us, let me ask you the question that we should all be asking and answering every single time we hear one of Jesus' parables. Which one of those two sons best describes your life? Which son are you in the story? Are you the son who says, yeah, God, I'm gonna do it. I'm making a commitment. When I was a kid, I went to that altar call at that camp. I'm giving you my life, Jesus. But then you never really follow through on all these glib confessions and these commitments you make to God. Or are you the son who was maybe a little bit reluctant, maybe said, ah, I just, this is so hard. I don't, I don't know if I wanna do this yet. But eventually, you came around to your senses and you followed through with what God was asking you to do. Let me make a statement that may not sound theologically accurate, but we can prove it through the Bible. Jesus would rather have your eventual obedience than your perpetual lip service. He, God snaps like a poetry slam, let's go. He would rather have your, this is so hard, I've been praying about this for weeks and I wasn't ready as soon as I heard what I was supposed to do to, to do it, but okay, God, I trust you and I'm gonna step into this. He would rather have that than the person with arms lifted every single Sunday and that fake Christian smile plastered on their face, the fish on the back of their car and Hillsong blasting out the windows that never actually does what Jesus is asking them to do. Let me talk to some people that are in process right now. Some people that have a heart for God, but you're just kind of working it out a little bit right now. Jesus is not scared of your pace. Last week, we made it very clear. We are not gonna rush you along the journey. He is in charge of your journey and nobody else on this planet gets to criticize the pace at which you are following him right now. He is fine with your eventual obedience as long as you are willing to say yes along the way and continue to remain submitted to his process. And if you don't believe me, take a long, hard look at some of the people that Jesus chose to be a part of his, his little crew in the Bible. Look at the disciples, man. These were not people that got it right out of the gate. All the people that Jesus used, these were not people that, yes, sir, yes, sir. Not at all. These people were jacked. Look at Matthew. You got a tax collector that everybody hates and Jesus says, I'm gonna bring you in. You're gonna write one of these New Testament books. You got Peter who cannot stop flapping his jaw and is always getting himself into trouble and yet Jesus uses him as the first preacher to bring about the birth of the New Testament church. He finds a loose woman at Sychar to be the first preacher to the Gentiles. He finds a woman that walks up to him in adultery and is being accused by all the Pharisees and he honors her while he dishonors all the religious people that brought him to her to stone her. He is all about the brokenhearted. He is all about the rejects. He is okay with you being in your process as you work some things out. But he is not okay with lip service. He is not okay with somebody who is playing the part and just playing the fiddle and smiling and looking like everything's okay while you never truly follow through with what Jesus is asking you to do. And listen, I, I get it, okay? I, I understand that sometimes the thing, well, oftentimes, 
the, thing that, the things that this book asks us to do are difficult. This is not an easy journey. If you thought this was gonna be unicorns and ponytails and butterflies, you got sold on the wrong religion, folks. This is a die to yourself daily kind of thing. I get it. I know what it feels like when there's a, a pattern in your life that you're so accustomed to and Jesus is saying, you need to knock that off and you're like, oh, I just don't know if I'm ready yet. I know what it's like when he says, hey, it's time for you to give of your resources, to tithe, and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. I understand that obedience is difficult sometimes, but we must all come to this space like that brother where even if it is after time and the discomfort of our obedience, we say, even though this is painful, even though this hurts, even though I'm not sure what the other side of this is going to look like, I choose to say yes to what the Father is asking me to do. I'm stepping over that threshold into obedience. But here's the truth. You, you will never walk over to that threshold until you encounter something first. In fact, that's the way that John concludes this letter. He reminds us that there is a motivation we must have before we step over that threshold into obedience. Look at how he concludes this little section today. He says in 1 John chapter two, but those who obey God's word, those who end up obeying God's word, they truly show how completely they love him. John reminds us that the motivation for all of this is not a fear of punishment. We aren't motivated to obey God because we don't wanna to go to hell. That's not it at all. The motivation is love. It's love for Jesus that motivates us to obey him. True love, it results in devotion. True love says, I am going to remain devoted to what you ask of me. Let's talk about love as we conclude here in the next couple of moments. It's Valentine's Day, right? How many of you guys are gonna go home at some point today and you're gonna watch like a rom-com or something? You're gonna watch one of those romantic movies? Praise God, I'm in the right church, all right? Nobody lifted their hand. All those guys are at home right now. <laughs> uh, okay, but if you've ever watched one of those before, uh, here's, here's what you'll find. You notice that like in a true love story, there's never a celebration of unfaithfulness. <laughs> you never like cheer on the guy that's sleeping with a different woman every single night, like, I hope he gets the girl. <laughs> No, no, no woman is watching a romantic comedy and taking tears, brushing them out of her eyes while the guy is swiping right on Tinder every single night, sleeping with a different girl. Like, oh my God, it's just so beautiful. It's such a beautiful love story. No, unfaithfulness is never celebrated because that's not what true love is. True love is devotion. True love results in commitment. And John concludes this little section of his letter by reminding us, hey, if we love God, we are going to naturally want to obey what he wants us to do. There is a devotion here. The litmus test of our love is our devotion. It's our obedience. If we have the capacity to continue to remain unfaithful without that bothering us, we need to think twice about whether or not we truly love God. We need to wonder, is this thing legitimate? 
Here's what, again, my good friend Tim Mackey says. He says, obedience is about love and listening. If an Israelite loves God, it will make it easier to listen and absorb his teachings and his guidance. This is why the words listen and love are so tightly connected and repeated all throughout scripture. That tells me something. That tells me that if we have obedience lacking, we don't have a listening problem as much as we have a loving problem. We don't need to fall back in line. We need to fall back in love. We need to remember how much Jesus loves us and we need to fall back in love with our Savior. And that presents a very daunting question, one that I want all of us to wrestle with as we conclude here. How does one fall back in love? If we've fallen out, how do we fall back in love with Jesus? And we'll talk a lot about this next week, but for today, we're gonna look at the advice of the love doctor himself, Brian McKnight from the R&B <laughs> classics in the 90s. One, you're like a dream come true. Two, only wanna be with you. Three, God, it's plain to see that you're the only one for me. How does that next part conclude? Whenever I believe my work is done, then I'll start it back. <laughs> Thank you. The worship team's in the front row like, I'll start it back. Start it back at one. Well, what did verse one say today? Hey, remember, you have an advocate. Remember, there is someone that loved you so much that he was willing to give his life on a cross for you. You know how to fall back in love? You just look at what Jesus has already done for you. It's a reciprocating kind of thing. When we see how much he's loved us, then we love him in return. And when we love him in return, we will listen to what he tells us to do. It's that simple. In fact, that's what I wanna pray over you as we conclude and the band comes. I wanna pray that we would get a fresh glimpse at Jesus today, that we would fall back in love if we found ourselves having a difficult time listening and that we would find ourselves in this text saying, I am the one who is obeying what God's asking me to do because I'm walking with him in love. Bow your heads, let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for your word today and I thank you that you don't ask anything of us that's impossible for us to do. All you ask is that we would entrust our lives to you and that you would guide us in that process. And I pray for everybody here today and anyone who's watching online before we give an opportunity for those that might be far from you to make a decision and step over that threshold to enter into relationship with you. I pray for those that may have been on the journey for a little bit of time right now. They're saying, hey, Tim, I, I, I just, I'm having a really hard time with that Shema thing. I'm hearing, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm having a, a really difficult time taking that next step. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would reveal yourself in a fresh way to them today, that they would see the holes in your hand and the, the holes in your feet and the crown of thorns and the death that you, you took on their behalf and that their response to such a thing would be, how could I not love a God who was willing to give so much for me. Jesus, you said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You didn't say that as if to say, if you love me, then prove it by obeying me. You said that the natural byproduct of loving me is that you're gonna obey what I ask you to do. 
Let a fresh love awaken in every heart today. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if there are some people here today and maybe you're watching and you would say, Tim, I, I, I've never entered into that relationship with Jesus. I, or maybe I did a long time ago, but I've been far from him and I know that I'm at a distance and I don't wanna stay there any longer. So before I work out this obedience thing, I, I need to reinitiate. I need to say yes to him. If that's you today, we don't have anybody looking around and it's between you and God, but I would like to know who I'm praying with. I'm gonna say a very simple prayer in just a moment, but before I do that, if you need to make a decision today to follow Jesus for the first time or afresh, would you just quickly look up at me and slip up your hand so I know who I'm praying with? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If you're online and you're making that decision, you can click the little link below that says I'm making a decision to follow Jesus. There'll be a little card that pops up there on your screen for you to fill out as well. All right, with everyone bowing their head and closing their eyes, I'm gonna say this prayer. You can repeat it after me right there in your heart. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for being my advocate, for sitting on that stand and in my defense, offering yourself up in exchange. Today, I, I give my life back to you. I wanna follow you all of my days. Help me to be your disciple from this day forward, to walk in your ways until I, I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, can we just thank God for anybody making that decision today online or in this space? Listen, if you prayed that prayer with me, there, again, there's some cards that are in the seats around you. And before we conclude, if you would take a moment and grab one of those cards, check the little box that said, I made a decision to follow Jesus. You can walk that back to our connect table. Uh, they're gonna tell you all about something called First 40, where we take the first 40, 40 days of your journey to walk you through prayer and reading the Bible and what the next steps of your faith are. But you know, something I mentioned today, even in the sermon, there's a little box on that that says get baptized. If you have not yet been water baptized, that is your next step. We're back in the building. We got a tank we can set up over there. We wanna do this at every single one of our services. So if you need to be baptized, again, you can check that box or for those watching online, you can sign up there on our website. Uh, why don't you stand to your feet as we conclude and uh, we're gonna have our prayer team come forward. If you need prayer for anything today, please come this direction. Um, if you need prayer online, you can, again, click the link below that says prayer. Uh, but for the rest of you guys, thank you so much for joining us for our first Sunday back. It was good to have you. And we'll be back once again next week, live and in person. Have an amazing Sunday. We'll see you soon. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.